Well, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is episode number 383, and our guest is Zoe. Zoe first joined us in episode number 366 as part of our Before and After the Hunt series. In that previous episode, we spoke with Zoe about her upcoming hunting season, which would be her very first personal hunt. And now here we are after that hunt to hear about not only the hunt itself, but all of the preparation and experiences that Zoe had leading up to that hunt. She had a very unique story and experience, not only with um, being a new hunter, but just what she was exposed to, which we will dive into in this conversation. It was a pleasure to get to know Zoe and chat with her, and I'm excited to share this one with you. If you didn't hear the Before the Hunt episode with Zoe, once again, that was episode 366, so you can look that up in the podcast app that you're using, or I will leave a link in the show description as well. Also, in terms of the show description, there will be a link to contact us or leave us a message. So if you have any questions for the podcast or you want to share any feedback or suggestions, go ahead and do that. Reach out. You can send an email to podcast at exomongear.com or look for the link that says leave a message, and you can leave an audio message for a future Q&A episode. Hit pause if you'd like to do that right now. Otherwise, let's dive into this conversation with Zoe. Well, Zoe, it's great to have you back. I, um, I was truly looking forward to this one because it was uh, such a unique opportunity, I think, to speak with you before your very first hunt and now after your very first hunt. Um, and part of what we want to talk about today was even what happened between when you and I last spoke for the podcast and then even before your hunt started, you had some experiences uh, with classes and helping other people on hunts. And so I would just love to kind of pick up the story there. Um, I mean, one notable thing you mentioned to me, and I don't know a ton about this, but you got to go to a new hunter class. And part of that was field dressing, which is something we talked about in our before the hunt episode. So can you maybe just tell me about that? What was that experience? What was it like? Yeah. So that, um, I was listening back on our podcast and when you said, well, you know that you take the skin off, right? And I said, yes, I was totally lying. <laughs> and I don't think <laughs> I did a good job of discard disguising it. So I took a class through backcountry hunters and anglers, their Utah branch in partnership with the Utah department of wildlife resources. And it was a six week class. And so one week was like regulations. Another week was we went to the shooting range and practiced different shooting positions and got to shoot. Another week was a scouting trip. And one week was dressing, um, field dressing an animal. Well, we did it in someone's garage, but Utah has a depredation program where if a farmer is having an issue with wildlife, you can there's tags to get them year round. And mm. so we got a mule deer from that program and we all took turns field dressing it. And then we processed it and had a little dinner party afterwards. And it was way different than what I thought. I don't know what I thought it would be like, like blood everywhere. But to be fair, it was already gutted. But it wasn't didn't give me the heebie-jeebies like I thought it would. Um, somebody asked me afterwards, I think I was talking to my mom and she's like, was it weird eating venison burgers while staring at the deer? Cause the deer was still right next to us. And I was like, no, it actually felt really good. Like the way meat should be eaten, like mm. right from the source without factory farms and other negative processes. Um, yeah. So what they get, like, physically, what did you do in terms of helping that process? I took off the back straps. I don't know why they trusted oh, cool. me with such a good part. Um, but we, so the, I guess, instructors or more experienced hunters, they did the first quarter and then we all took turns doing the rest and, you know, they would guide you. And then as we got more meat off, 
some people broke off and learned how to process um, the meat. We practice hunt, uh, packing like a backpack with meat and how to do that. So, you know, you minimize your risk of injury. Um, we went over some safety tips, you know, pros and cons of having a knife with a replaceable blade so you don't have to sharpen throughout the day if that's something that your knife is prone to need. Um, and it was really nice to hear something they, that really stuck with me that the person who was showing us how to field dress that he said, you know, there's a million ways to do it. So do what works for you and what's safest for you. And also like, it's going to be messy your first 20 times and probably your first a hundred times um, to not pretend like you're a surgeon, right? It doesn't have to be perfect. Your job is to get the meat out before it spoils, not, you know, be on Grey's Anatomy doing perfect cuts. <laughs> yeah. That's like, uh, man, like what a perfect opportunity for really what you personally needed, you know, uh, such a benefit to you to have that experience. I know. I couldn't believe it. Um, it seemed that whole class, because I didn't know I was going to be able to get into that class. Because when we had talked, I just moved to Utah, like not even, you know, I got in my hunter's education, but like I hadn't gotten connected with local groups. I, you know, had to unpacked boxes and I was able to get into this class at the last minute. And it was such a saving grace. Um, just, you know, meeting every week, having people talk to you about gear and questions and experiences. Um, we, we've been doing check-ins over Zoom and I cannot be, I cannot express how grateful I am for this public programming because it's exactly what I was craving. And then, you know, I did have the opportunity to help a friend pack out and field dress. And I felt like I knew what I was doing. And that's because of that class. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that you, again, like we basically had a super brief email. You mentioned going to a class, you mentioned helping a friend pack out, but I wasn't sure of the details. So helping this friend that was with an elk, correct? Yeah, he got an elk. And so he reached me because I was like, I'll be, you know, around this week. And if you need help packing out, and reach me or text me. And so he sent me his coordinates. He's like, I got an elk. Can you come help pack out? And so I went. Um, I would, my mistake was I didn't practice using my inReach before I got to a place without service. So I wish I would have gotten more familiar with it, like in my living room, rather than waiting until I'm, you know, trying to navigate Onyx and in the middle of nowhere. Um, like what issue did you have with the inReach? Well, I had paid for the subscription, but figuring out if you, cause like they have those emails. So it's like so-and-so at Garmin.com or whatnot. Yeah. But then also they have different phone numbers. So if you text someone from your inReach, it's not the same phone number. Like I didn't know if I needed to communicate with him. Do I do the email, the right. strange phone number or his normal phone number? And so those are things where like that's on me. I'm a very um, flexible person. We can just say that. And so like definitely the gear and preparedness of hunting took me for a loop because I kind of like to just be a little uh, less organized, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, like I really like running and cycling because you just put on your gear and go. There's, you know, like you put on pants and a shirt and shoes and you go. Hunting, very different. So the inReach, you know, I didn't have the phone app either because um, okay. I had these, you know, delusions that when I'm hunting, I'll be off the grid and it will be so, you know, organic, just me and nature. The Garmin phone app is absolutely necessary because texting on that thing is a pain in the butt. <laughs> you have the <laughs> mini, the inReach mini? Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's terrible. Use the app for sure. Yeah, but I thought I was like, I don't know, I would be like more backcountry if I didn't have my phone, if I wasn't using my phone. But both that and then Onyx tracking, I ended up needing, um, at least in the beginning of the season, to really help orient 
myself and see like, how straight am I actually walking when I think I'm walking straight? So I hiked about, I mean, it was a long pack out. It was probably four and a half miles, lots of elevation, I think almost 2000 feet to him. And he was dressing it, had just started. So, you know, also he had run out of water. So I was bringing lots of water. That's um, something I did a good job of throughout the season. I feel like I was always the last person to run out of water Um, because I've listened to a lot of your podcasts about people who, you know, there's no water resources at all. And there actually ended up not know where I was hardly. There was enough water to even filter. And so we finished dressing it. And then we hiked back up to the trail. And on the way to the trail, somebody kept calling at me, elk calling. I think they thought I was an elk because eventually they came out and they were like, looked very disappointed to see a human, but (laughs) I had a good conversation with them. You know, they were like, Oh, I've been hunting this area for generations. It's like, Oh, this is my first time. I'm actually just helping my friend pack out. Um, and so that was great. Oh, another hack for attaching the tag. Most women always have a hair tie on their wrist and you can use that. You can like loop it through itself to attach the tag to either the game bag or the antler. Um, cause when it came time to attach the tag, he was dumbfounded and I was like, Oh, use one of these 10 hair ties. I always have on my wrists. See, I've never like experienced this in the field. So there you go. Pro yeah, tip so for maybe, women or dudes with longer hair. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so we packed out and it was heavy for me. It was my heaviest pack. I was not good about training with weight over the summer. I was very good about my fitness. I was in the best shape ever, but I just didn't train with weight because I don't know. I didn't particularly enjoy it. I'd rather hike 20 miles a day with no weight than hike for three hours with weight. And what type of pack are you using? I'm using my backpacking backpack from college okay like so, a spray or something like that yeah yeah <laughs> um so it's bright blue it's very visible um which i think is actually good if you're packing out during hunting season because your orange gets covered by your pack but it's like by no means a hunting pack you would probably be embarrassed to see it um <laughs> not your at backpack. all like it's i mean we use Prior to EXO, uh, we used to use backpacking packs, at least while hunting, because, you know, frame haulers were so big and bulky and heavy. And yeah, so, and I, yeah, I've I've done that. I've been there for sure. Yeah. And I just didn't, it just didn't seem like gear I had to spend money on this first season. And so I knew to put all my stuff in a garbage bag in case like the game bags leaked or whatnot. Um And then it turned out my friend, he had an external frame on his. His was an actual hunting backpack. It wasn't XO. And his meat kept slipping out of like the frame. Maybe he was packing it wrong because he was really tired at that point. So I ended up carrying a lot of it. And I was like, you know, the great thing about backpacking backpack, you just shove it all in and it doesn't go anywhere. Um. But it was really heavy towards the end. I had my hiking poles, which were essential. Mm-hmm. I had never used them before. And then I brought them because I'd heard that they're useful when you have a lot of weight for keeping your balance. And I needed them so badly. I mean, it was a long day. And towards the end, I was just really tired. Yeah. Um, but it was one of my most fun days of the season. That's like awesome. putting in that hard work. Um, any idea how much weight like roughly you were packing well i don't want to embarrass myself but it was probably like 60 pounds <laughs> yeah but i mean with a backpacking pack and then you know you being a smaller female like in relation to body weight for most guys here in that it's you know probably equivalent to a bunch of dudes carrying 100 pounds right and i now see the value of training with weight before i'd always tried you know when i go on my hiking trips i always try to keep my pack as light as possible 
Um, but things like my waist belt was really uncomfortable. And that's something that I could have figured out before actually going on this little excursion. Um, like it doesn't need to be chafing me. Like I should have just gotten it fit better or, you know, adjusted it somehow. Um, but I ended up, uh, being a really good experience. I went back with that same crew later in the season to help them spot and potentially pack out. But that ended up being um, the only pack out I did this season. So I'm really grateful for both the class having that field dressing experience, you know, in it was in somebody's uh, class or garage rather felt like a classroom where you could ask a lot of questions and then being able to apply that in the field was Mm -hmm. probably one of my favorite things I've done this year. Yeah, it's cool that even before your personal hunts, you got the satisfaction of processing an animal and then packing that out and all of the work and the process and like then had the end result of having the meal. Like even though it wasn't, you know, your animal in these instances, I think it's such a great glimpse into the process and yeah, the process the meat later that week. I went over and from like 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. was just processing and packaging meat for the freezer. And like I loved that too. Um and so it really was, I don't know, like the best dress rehearsal. That's great. Was that um that elk harvest? Was that with a bow or a rifle that you were with for your friend? It was with a bow. Yeah. Awesome. So one of the things you mentioned was that you guys did some shooting, I think from, you said from positions. And that was one thing I was kind of curious about is just in general, not necessarily tied to the class. You can relate it to that. But when we had talked before, you know, it sounded like you were kind of still getting things set up with rifle and shooting a little bit. And I was just kind of curious where going into where your hunt actually started, like where was your confidence level with shooting in particular? Um, It still is low. That's definitely my least favorite part of hunting. Like I'm not a gun nut. Um, It just is not interesting to me. Like I never listened to your rifle episodes of the podcast. (laughs) I don't know. It's just, I love being outdoors. I love the athletic aspect and the conservation aspect. And I love animals. And for me, like owning firearms is just something I have to do in order to hunt. Um, it's not like a passion. Um, that's something I need to get better at. And so I'd say I still, I don't, I'm still have a lot of room for improvement with like target acquisition. Um, I'm on the wait list for the 22 that I want so that I can be practicing more without, you know, my huge creed more. Mm-hmm. but it's something that I knew the, you know, the whole summer and fall, I could have been sitting in my basement, you know, make sure the gun's not loaded, take out the bolts and, you know, just throwing up and trying to aim at different spots on the wall, do it from different positions. And I was not good about making myself do that. I think part of it is I was raised in a very like anti-gun culture. And so it still feels weird to just like sit in my basement and play with guns. <laughs> um, even though I'm very safe about it, I have no doubts about that. I've taken beyond the required gun safety classes. I've taken additional classes just for myself at shooting ranges. That's something I definitely want to work on. I was very reliant on we have a public shooting range in utah and i got my rifle um zeroed in there and they were very helpful it's most it's like retired guys and it's their passion and you know you pay a very low amount because it is a public facility but you still have to pay and they were very helpful the shooting lesson was super helpful but that's probably, I'd say, like my biggest room for growth. Like I would rather hike to prepare for hunting than practice shooting, um, which is fine. Although yeah, it maybe makes me totally think fine. that maybe I should look into bow hunting. But yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, that was probably the hardest part of it for me. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, I'm a decent shot. Like that's not the issue. It's I'm not super comfortable. Like all the times I've gone to a range, I'm have a, you know, probably surprisingly good shot given my low level of experience. But that's just something I need to get more comfortable with. Yeah, this is like very, you know, a small sample size, but all of the new shooters I've ever shot with women are always the best because guys like inherently, even if they haven't shot before, you know, men tend to have like this inherent, like, I know I should know how to do this. I'm going to pretend I know how to do this kind of like this false overconfidence. Um, whereas all mm-hmm. of the females that I've taught to shoot, whether it's handgun rifles, whatever, they're so like much more open-minded and know that they don't know. And therefore, they just end up doing way better because they actually listen to instruction better and just approach everything (laughs) differently. So I would probably say that even though you're not fully comfortable, what you mentioned there is like, you're probably surprisingly good because you don't have like this false overconfidence, if that makes sense. Yeah. I'd say one thing, I mean, I didn't really have the opportunity to put this into practice, but like if I needed to get off a quick shot, like I think it would be hard for me to get in a stable position and find the target within like, you know, those three seconds or whatever. Like even in, even in that, like you focusing on that, on both setting up stable positions and target acquisition is like a perfect example because most guys are much more into like the gear and the ballistics and all this stuff that doesn't make nearly as much of a difference as what you just said in terms of setup, stability, target acquisition. Like that's where most of the gains are going to come from. So um, yeah. And that, as you mentioned, like that's all stuff you can actually easily practice without shooting. So yeah, even if you didn't want to get to the range all the time and fire a bunch of rounds, like setting up and all that stuff is something you could work on. And I knew that I knew from the get go that my hunt would be limited by what I was comfortable in terms of distance and difficulty shooting. Um, You know, hunting for me, it's a way to participate in conservation and spend more time outside and with animals and get meat from a sustainable source. And so there's nothing in it where I need to, you know, shoot something at 450 yards to prove anything. Right. I, I, for me, it it was always important that hunting was enjoyable, even like type two fun as some people call it. But, you know, if I ever felt really stressed or pressure to take a shot, I just wasn't going to take it. Um, And so, you know, I, probably would not have shot anything over 250 yards. And like, that's fine. That's my boundary. Um, Just because, you know, I want to be very sure that I'm going to make the shot. I don't think it's worth like stressing out over bringing something home when, you know, I could, it's not going to be the end of the world if I eat meat from the store for a year. Yeah, that's, that's great. I mean, I, I still feel the same way. There's, there's situations where, you know, it's just tough because it's not all about distance. Sometimes I'm way more comfortable taking, um, you know, a little bit further shot that obviously I have time to set up for the animals not moving, et cetera, rather than rushing into making something happen, even if it's relatively close. So that's all good stuff. And one other thing I want to mention about my preparation before we talk about the hunt, I did two volunteer conservation trips over the summer, one with the Idaho Trails Association and one with, uh, it was Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and the Bob Wil- Bob Marshall Wilderness Foundation. And so these were backpacking trips with the leader and one focused on invasive species control and the other was trail clearing. And those turned out to be some of the best experiences for my getting ready for hunting because you know you're in the middle of nowhere a wilderness area definitely no reception with strangers for seven days who also love the outdoors and so being able to just talk to them about their experiences outdoors especially with hunting some of the volunteers have been hunting for decades was so useful and then now like we text message and keep up and so 
I'm able to ask questions about gear. And so, and it also made me more comfortable in the outdoors too. Mm. And that was, I mean, I think it sounds like kind of hokey to go on these like volunteer vacations, right? That's something that like kids trying to get into college do so they can write their essay or whatnot. (laughs) But it's a great way for people like me who weren't raised in the outdoors to get more comfortable spending time outdoors in a somewhat safer environment. Like, I don't know if I'd go camping in Grizz country by myself, but with a group, you know, and then each night I slowly inched my tent further away from the group. And it, and you give back to like being able to contribute to the public lands that I benefit from when I hunt is a great feeling knowing that in a few months, there's going to be hunters on this trail and they're going to be less likely to hurt themselves packing out a heavy pack because we resurfaced the trail or cut all these trees that they were, you know, going to have to be stepping over. Yeah. That's the seven day trip you did. One was seven and one was five. Wow. That's and they cost had... like 75 bucks for the whole week and they feed you really well too. So, I mean, paying for gas to get up to Idaho and Montana from Utah was the biggest thing, but it was so worth it. And the people were, you know, just fountains of knowledge and about all things outdoorsy, public lands, hunting, fishing, I learned how to fly fish on one of the trips, um, which makes hunting seem simple. I did not like fly fishing. There's just so <laughs> much that can go wrong with fly fishing. Goodness, I'll slip to my spin rod. But also it was great. Like on the trip to Bob Marshall, I practiced tracking animals a ton. Like, oh, this is a grizzly print. This is a black bear print. This is an elk print. This is a deer print. Um Maybe the bear prints were like a little less fun to track because that was kind of scary at points because they were like right on top of us. But just having that time in nature when it's like so far removed from hunting season, this was in June and July, that I wasn't really even thinking about hunting. I just could soak up the land and ended up learning a ton about animals just from being there, not from going out saying, I need to use this to prepare for hunting season. But just by being there, it like, um, I think it was like the catalyst for when I started really feeling like I could go outdoors for a long time on my own and feel safe and confident. You've got like a, such an intense or like depth to how much, um, experience you've packed into such a short time from a beginner's perspective that's super unique to go on all these trips to meet people to help on other hunts and to do all this and such a very short time before your own hunts is pretty dang amazing yes it is i felt to be fair i felt a little bit burned out by the time my season started um yeah i can see i don't think that i should think of hunting season as a season but like it's really a year round pursuit. Like I'm, it's not like I'm not going to go outdoors again Yeah. during the winter. Right. Like I'm not done. Um, but thinking of, you know, it helps to hear from more experienced hunters who don't feel this like crunch in the fall. They're like, you know, it's a lifetime pursuit, relax, have fun. It's not just all about those in Utah. It's only two weeks was my season. So it was real short. It's not just about the two weeks where you can actually get a shot in. It's about, you know, a lifelong pursuit to be out with the animals in a positive way. Yeah. But I was definitely pretty aggressive this summer. I did like nothing except prep for my gear, practice. Well, like the few times I practiced shooting, but I was hiking every day. And part of that is I'm a teacher. And so during the summer, I don't have to work. I thought there's things I should have been doing, but I just didn't do them. I (laughs) I was just hiking instead. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So before, like one of the things that came up in our previous conversation, and I think you, you mentioned this in reference to like talking with other people when they found out that you hunted and, you know, at, at that time you hadn't really hunted big game yet. You talked like kind of about this imposter syndrome a little bit. I'm not sure if you use those words or not, but kind of that idea. 
with with all this other experience that you've had and then now you've gone on this hunt and we'll talk about that a little bit but is that something you still feel like you wrestle with a little bit or do you have much more i don't say confidence but much more comfort in no i have been out i have gained experience i've field dressed animals packed animals tracked animals backpacked like you've done a lot in a short time so do you feel more confident i guess or comfortable saying you're a hunter now Yes, definitely. Um, from the experience and also, so the podcast, the leader of the class that I took, he ended up listening to it and he sent me an email and he's like, don't ever let anybody tell you you're not a hunter. Like that's garbage. Don't give them any credence. Like you are a hunter through and through. So that really helped, um, Also, like, I was surprised at the number of novice adult hunters I met. So I had just moved to Salt Lake over the summer and was, like, meeting friends through, like, meetup groups online, meeting new friends. And there were so many people that were like, oh, yeah, I'm hunting elk this year. I was like, no way. So am I. Like, how, you know, how long have you been doing this? And they're like, oh, this will be my second year. Or this will be my first year. Or oh, it's actually my dad who has the tag. I just always go with him. And so in those conversations, I think I was expecting people to say like, oh, I've been doing this since the day I could walk, right? They were like, oh, I, you know, shot an elk before I could read a book. Mm -hmm. But there are so many other adults that I met that were not raised in necessarily outdoor families, but have gotten into hunting recently and i found that incredibly heartening for him i don't feel imposter syndrome except for the fact that i mean this is just stupid but like i guess one of my like best hunting experiences was doing that really heavy pack out and dressing the meat and then i went out with those guys like another couple of times you know days from 2 30 to 10 30 but like those weren't even on my tags but i really shouldn't care it doesn't matter who holds the tag so mostly imposter syndrome is gone. I just try not to think about it. And also the people who, you know, would judge me, like who cares? People are always going to judge you for something. So. Yeah. And I think far fewer people are, would judge you than you think, or like, I think a lot of yeah. the imposter syndrome type stuff can be self-imposed. Um, there's always going to be people who have more experience than you. Um no matter what, right? So if you keep hunting and in 10 years, we were to have a conversation again and you've had all these successful hunts, maybe in different areas, different species, et cetera, like there's still someone who's done way more and theoretically knows way more. But a lot of times those people with more experience are just happy for you and whatever experience you have. I feel the opposite that it's it's not the hunters that judge me. It's the non-hunters. Yeah. So like one of my trip leaders for my summer conservation trip i texted him after my hunt and he got and i didn't fill my tag and i was disappointed he goes sounds like my first five elk hunts and i was like i still have four more to mess up (laughs) like this is makes me feel so much better i think because hunters understand how much work it is but i feel like a lot of my non-hunting people in my life like for them, it's like you get an animal and that's it. It's not yeah. staying in shape all year round. It's not spending an hour organizing your gear the night before. It's not, you know, learning, you know, sitting at your computer, learning about regulations, which Utah's about to change them all for next year. So I have another big study session coming up. <laughs> um, Or, you know, planning your hunts months and months in advance, right? So, like, the Utah Sportsman tag comes out next week. And so, I'm already starting to think about which tags I want to put in for next year and how to allocate those points. And, you know, thinking about things like weather patterns and migration patterns and climate change and how that's affecting. I mean, like, for a lot of our bow season in Utah, it was in the 90s. And so I feel like non-hunters, if you don't get an animal, then they think that you didn't hunt. But I hunters recognize that it's 
really like a year round pursuit. I mean, by the time you're done with your hunt, it's about time to start planning your tags and then planning your fitness and ordering gear and all sorts of things. Absolutely. That's well said. So your hunt in particular, um, is that something you ended up doing? Did you spend time in that country? Were you able to kind of scout it? Were any of these other experiences in the same area that you would be hunting? Scouting was the best. I loved scouting so much. I got, so I had a spike tag, still have not ever seen a spike, which is not great, but I got so close to massive bulls. I mean, first of all, this country is just gorgeous. I mean, absolutely beautiful. You can see all it's wooded, but then you can see all these amazing, like classic Utah rock formations in the distance. It's a very diverse landscape. And it's just like, every time you look up from whatever tracks or poop that you're focusing on, on the ground, it's just like, takes your breath away how beautiful it is. And we had great luck getting so close to bulls. I remember at one point we were walking up a ridge and we came across a bull that was 30 yards away max. And it startled us because we weren't expecting it because we were tracking a different bugling bull. And so we immediately froze and I just had eye contact with it for probably seven or eight minutes. I could see the steam coming out of its nostrils. I got to watch it bugle. And then it went probably, I don't know, like 40 yards away for the next 10 minutes. And we still got to watch it. And it was just like, I mean, I get the chills thinking about it. Like I, the only reason I didn't cry because I was so like emotionally overwhelmed because it was so cool is because I was like, I don't know if elk can smell tears, but if anyone can, (laughs) it's probably elk. And, you know, no footage of this because you can't, I couldn't reach from my phone or anything. I mean, I kid you not when I could tell you, I can could see it breathing. That's how close I was. And then we saw other massive bulls from, you know, always less than a hundred yards away. Like the scouting was just unreal. It was exactly what I wanted, except for the fact that I guess I didn't scout anything that I actually had a tag to shoot, but I didn't care. I knew that. I think I told you in the summer podcast that I chose the spike only tag because I wanted to be able to get into spike only units because they're, they're just some units that are magical, like in the land. And I wanted to see big bulls for down the road. Mm-hmm. And I definitely fulfilled that mission. It was, oh my gosh, the best few weekends. That's awesome. What time of year was that that you were scouting? It was September. Okay. Were they still in velvet? Um, like early September or late September? Oh, okay, so they were and yeah, and like all the aspen trees were like bright yellow. They were bugling like crazy. Like we would just lie in our sleeping bags and listen to them bugle and be like, okay, I guess that's where we're going in the morning. Um. So you know, I like at campsite the entire season. I had to whisper the entire time because we camped you know, decently close to the elk and I was, which was maybe one of the harder things for me. I was like, wait, I have to go five days without talking loudly. Uh, (laughs) But it was so worth it. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's just, it's hard to describe the feeling, but I'm sure you know it. And, you know, people who hunted before or had outdoors experiences before know what I'm trying to describe. Yeah, for sure. I'm not, I don't want to make everything like too deep or philosophical, but you're obviously very thoughtful and then you have a unique experience just being newer to all this. Does, does the encounters, like you said, with that elk, hearing a bugle, like seeing it breathe, being that close, so majestic, you have so much like respect and admiration for it. Is there any part of you that then is also like, oh, I think it would be actually difficult to kill a bull like that? No. Um, I mean, I definitely feel like I love like each bull that I got close to. I'm like, I love that bull. Like I have a 
deep love for that bowl. But I also know that like, if I were to have the opportunity to take it, like it would feed not only me, but like all the friends that I could like, you know, I have friends, you know, I have some friends who are doctors and they're really busy and I could make them, you know, recipes with that elk for them to put in their freezer for when they're really busy. And that would fuel them and fuel, you know, all the good they're doing in their careers. And I could, um, you know, like use every part of the animal that I'd be able to. And I feel like that's a very natural relationship between humans and animals. Like I wouldn't be taking it in vain. I would never take a shot that I wasn't almost as positive as one could be. I would make. Um, and so I didn't think it would make it harder. If anything, I think it would make me appreciate it so much more. And I am very cognizant of fair chase. I don't want to trap the elk by any means. Like I don't, I did help some friends. They like had me with the spawning scope on the ridge opposite them. And then I would in reach them if I were to see anything. And like in retrospect, I think that's a little bit outside my comfort zone, even though I know a lot of people have used friends to help them spot. I think for me, I'd rather just not have that extra help. Um, you know, a lot of people will use like, trail cams or game cams to pattern the elk in the off season. And I don't know if I would, I think if I did that, I would feel have a harder time taking the elk because they don't have a camera on me. Right. Um, rather than just waiting to track them in person. But I was surprised. I mean, I guess I was kind of surprised that it didn't make me want to kill them any less. Cause that's kind of what you would think. But it wasn't the case because I knew like all the good that the meat could do and, you know, providing for me and people I cook for. And, and I don't feel slimy about like how I go about hunting. Like I really, tr I really do pay attention to fair chase and even, you know, even things like having friends from multiple vantage points spotting, like I don't even really want to do that at this point right it's not like I'm going to starve if I don't get this elk and so I want to be as you know give the elk as good of a shot as possible to you know be an equal player in this pursuit which um is important to me like I don't know you hear about like some of the game cam regulations in other states and I'm just like that seems like it's very easily going to be abused yeah, that I think um, there's obviously there's laws, right? Like all hunters need to abide by all laws. Like that's what you're signing up for when you say, I'm going to hunt the state or the species, whatever those laws are, you are signing up to abide by those laws and those regulations. But that that can be a minimum standard, right? So there's yeah. Things in certain places that maybe you can legally do that you're not comfortable doing personally. And that doesn't mean that, you know, you should do any more than what you're comfortable doing, right? Like the laws, the regulations are kind of called the minimum. And if hunters are fine with just that, then that's great. Um, I'm not saying anyone shouldn't be. But then, yeah, if there's things that you theoretically legally could do in your pursuit of game, but that you don't feel as comfortable or for for your own personal ethics that you're not on board with, then yeah, hunt your hunt, right? That's obviously legal and regulations. And mm -hmm. then stick to how you feel you should pursue that game. Yeah, and another... Yeah, another good example of that that I came across specific to Utah laws is if you shoot an animal and it goes onto private land, you can't follow it. And so things like being mindful of, okay, if I, where am I comfortable taking a shot? Because I don't want it to wander onto private land and suffer. So that reduced my hunting area somewhat substantially, you know, elk can really make a move if they have one shot in them and they're motivated to get away. 
But there are a lot of people who don't think of that and that's fine. That's their hunt. But for me, I was like, okay, I, you know, I want my shot to be close. I want to feel confident in it. And it cannot be near private land because I need to be able to make sure I follow through and that the meat doesn't go to waste. And so that, um, was something that a boundary that I set in place for myself before the hunt that wasn't, you know, wasn't just the law, but above and beyond that. Yeah. Anything else leading up to the start of the hunt itself that you kind of want to touch on? Because we were cruising through time here and Evan actually talked about your hunting experience. One really cool experience I had scouting that I think is noteworthy is we were walking back in the dark and I always had my inReach with me, but I didn't turn it on. I mean, it was like attached to my bino harness, very accessible, but I was just having an ego moment. And I was like, I'll turn it on if I need it. Right. You want it turned on before you need it. And for whatever reason, we weren't carrying the sidearm again, probably an ego moment. And we are walking along the trail and we see this, these deer eyes look back at us or look at us from ahead. And we're like, why isn't it moving? And we finally get within maybe five yards of it and it hobbles off. And we're like, that's weird. And then about a millisecond later, something massive jumps down from a tree onto the trail in front of us and runs away, which was beyond terrifying. Um, (laughs) And so we think it was probably either a bear or a mountain lion seemed to... uh, agile to be a bear, probably a mountain lion that had been in the process of killing that deer, which is why the deer couldn't just get away because it had been hurt. And when we came on the trail, it startled the mountain lion up into the tree. And so we had essentially gotten ourselves between a mountain lion and its food source with no form of self-protection, also didn't have bear spray. That was stupid. In the dark, I mean, it was a very big wake up moment that, you know, we need, even though like we're close friends, you still got to go through some of that cheesy stuff at the beginning. Like here's where the truck keys are in case something happens to the person who drives the truck. And we both need to carry first aid kits, even if we're together 90% of the time and we need bear spray on holsters. I mean, at that point, like a gun would not have done any good. Um, if a mountain lion's on your friend, right? You're not going to shoot the mountain lion and accidentally shoot your friend. You can mace your friend and they'll get over it. Yeah. But that was probably the moment where I was like, okay, I feel like I'm in a legit outdoors woman. I've had my mountain lion <laughs> encounter. This is fine. But it was definitely gave us the heebie-jeebies. Um, yeah. We didn't really think about it at the moment. It's not until like, you know, we were back in Salt Lake City that we were like, yeah, that was really not good at all and terrifying when you think about it. So I just try not to think about it. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of funny. Like you mentioned, kind of leading up to that story, not having your energy on, but yeah, certainly with the mountain lion, whether your energy was on or off, that's no help. <laughs> no, right? <laughs> the mountain like- lion's like one of those critters that. There's not much, I mean, in many instances, and it is obviously very rare to have mountain lion attacks or, or encounters for that matter. But um, yeah, it's definitely one of those, especially in the dark. It's like, they're going to be on you before you have a chance to do a thing. So yeah, just put that right, one Especially if it's jumping down from a tree in front of like 10, I mean, probably I keep using feet. That's maybe where I have imposter syndrome. I feel like I need to use yards to be a legit hunter. No, no, because when you say feet <laughs> over yards, it sounds like even more intense. Like 10 oh, yeah, feet. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so much closer than 10 yards. It makes I mean, for it better probably you know, like stories. 10 to 15 feet in front of us, like where it jumped down on the trail. And it was just like, what incarnation was that? And the my friend I was with, he grew up in the rural outdoors, like is part mountain goat, I'm convinced. And that was the scariest thing that's happened to him. And so I was like, oh, okay. Well, that the probability of me ever having a mountain lion encounter again must be really low because that's how probability works, right? Like I got it out of the way. Yeah, it is. Yeah, they're 
obviously it depends the area right but in general even an area where big cats live it's pretty stinking rare yeah and we don't have bears in utah so that's also like really nice for camping you don't have to worry about food or smells or anything as opposed to like montana or idaho where you are um we didn't have to be bear aware at all and so but you gotta think about like i'm going deer hunting in montana later this winter and i do need to think about getting comfortable with the sidearm if i'm going to be in grizz country plus Mm -hmm. my bear spray so the hunt itself like to spoiler alert you didn't fill a tag Mm -hmm. um but like what are some notable experiences from the hunt lessons learned anything that kind of like surprised you or caught you off guard um i mean we've already talked about so much great experience that you've had this year but what are some experiences from okay season's open i'm actually hunting this could happen um what's notable from that portion of this whole experience for you i needed to do a better job of getting ahead in my work um because that turned out to be like the hardest thing for me was work-life balance during hunting season and feeling stressed out about work that needed to be done while i was in the woods and so that's something that i just know for the future that like i need to have my teaching prep 500 percent completed through the entire month of october in order to truly be able to leave work behind that was hard for me um also what was hard is you know during scouting you have all these beautiful aspen trees that are bright yellow and it's unreal okay, well, by the time my hunting season came, all the leaves fell down and every step you take is incredibly loud. And it just felt futile to stalk these elk because one, they're not bugling. And two, every sound you make is like somebody chewing potato chips through a mega horn, right? Like <laughs> like Tim's potato that. chips. That's a great way to do it. Like really crunchy potato chips, like every step. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so- That was, my friend is also new to Utah. And that was something that we just did not think about because he's used to hunting, you know, with evergreens where you don't, if anything, you have needles fall down, but like the leaves on the ground were a force to be reckoned with. And also once all the leaves are down, the visibility is very high. And so elk could go to a different place. Because they can't hide in the aspen groves anymore because all the leaves have fallen. And so I didn't think as much about like the changing of seasons as I should have. And the environmental implications. Also, the elk had completely stopped bugling at that point. I think we heard one bugle in the five days we were out. And so I'm considering doing muzzle loader season next year just because it's earlier. Um the amount of people I was surprised by, like however much orange you have put on more. Um, I'm actually wearing my orange right now just because it's a really comfortable sweatshirt. But, you know, it's also good. Like I run and bike and when it gets dark early in the winter, like I'm going to be wearing my blaze orange so that cars see me. And so it's not, you know, a purchase that you use just for hunting season. It's important in, you know, other situations to be high vis, but there were people everywhere, which is actually something Utah's going to address. So what they're going to do now, instead of the two-week rifle season, they're going to split it up into two one-week seasons so that hopefully people get spread out a little bit more. Um, and then having a comfortable camp was also clutch for us. So we just car camped and we bought a like memory foam mattress topper from Walmart. It was like the queen size, which was exactly the size of my tent. And just being able to get really good rest at night helped immensely. Um, I mean, that's not to say I won't ever do a backcountry backpacking hunt and that in the summer I'm going to, you know, I'll still travel light and sleep um on my thin little sleeping pad but like making camp as comfortable as possible i think really helped us rejuvenate between the going out in the morning and going out in the evening yeah that's huge like getting good rest like once those days start to add up and you're on day five if you haven't slept good for the previous four nights you'll you'll be feeling that for sure 
Yeah. And I slept great, which I'm very grateful for. Um, almost too comfortable because it was hard to get out of my sleeping bag. I bought a new sleeping bag because I've been using my same one since like middle school sleepovers. And so I got a good sleeping bag and I'm like, wow, I actually miss having my sleeping bag where I'm freezing because I always got out of bed way easier with it. But now <laughs> that I was actually warm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we had good tracking experiences. You know, we got real close to some elk at what, I think it was the second to last day where we were tracking not just, you know, their poop, but also like urine that was fresh. But we just, you know, kept, they were moving in the same direction we were. And we only got eyes on them once when we first initially saw them across the way. And then we never, we got close to them. We were right on their heels, but ended up not finding them. That was the closest we got during the whole hunting trip, which was five days. And so it's like, we had incredible luck scouting during scouting season. But then when it came to the actual hunt, like all of a sudden the ground was really loud and the elk had moved because there was no cover and there were no bugles and there were people everywhere on four wheelers that are noisy and disruptive to elk habitat. And it was, it seemed like kind of a different world, but you know, I wasn't there necessarily to take an animal. I was there to be in nature. And so that's what I did. Do you feel like you learned over this time where the elk, how they may have been behaving, moving where they were finding cover? Yeah. And I think that would affect where I scout next. It will affect where I scout next year is like thinking, okay, how is this going to be different in two weeks? Um, and scouting where I think they're going. I don't know. It's hard. Cause like if I scout where they're going to go, then they won't be there yet. But if I scout where they currently are, then they won't be there when I hunt. So maybe like trying to figure out how to take off work and scout like the days leading up to the hunt. So just get out there a few days early mm -hmm. rather than do weekend trips the month before. Mm -hmm. yeah, but I mean, part hard. of it's like learning the land. Like I'm new to this state. I'm not sure. Like I didn't know that Aspen leaves fell. I mean, had I thought about it, I would have told you that they fall at some point, but I didn't realize they like all fall at once and then they're really crunchy. Well, and think of like this year is quote unquote scouting, like for the future, it's giving you information and a better understanding of, okay, as the seasons change based on weather, based on the changing of leaves and all that, based on cover changing, based on hunting pressure, like you're, you're learning from this hunt, not only if you had the exact same tag again, but just a better understanding of, okay, as a hunter, like here's what I now perceive and understand about how elk may behave differently, may move differently, may use different types of terrain. And that experience mm -hmm. can carry over, you know, and to other hunts in the future, again, even if it's not in that same exact spot. So yeah, I mean, it's all part of the puzzle. Yeah. Some of it's stochastic too. So like we started out in one unit that my friend's family had been using for decades as their honey hole and we went there and there was no bugling. And so we called his dad and he's like, that is so weird. I've never experienced that. Nature is unpredictable. And then we went to a different area, maybe 20 miles away, and there was tons of bugling. Mm -hmm. And so to hear an experienced hunter who knows the land, like the back of his hand say, I've never experienced elk not bugling like crazy there. I mean, at some point, you know, the dumbest elk is still smarter than the smartest human, right? You can't totally explain their behavior or predict what they're going to do or read their minds. And so that was comforting to hear that even somebody who's, you know, elk hunting is something they've done for decades that they'll also get surprised by the elk made me feel more comforted because, you know, you can be strategic about scouting, but that's at some point you have to realize that you can't outsmart an elk and you can't always predict what they're going to do. 
Yeah. And that, again, like that's going to continue forever. And that's part of the beauty of hunting, right? Every year and every hunt can be different than the last and throw you curveballs, keep you on your toes, force you to learn. And, Mm -hmm. um, it, you know, if it was just always super easy and you always knew what game was going to do and then what you should do, obviously that would not have the appeal that it does. I mean, it's the continued challenge that is what makes things great. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So coming out of this, we're like, what do you feel about the future? Are you like discouraged in any way? Are you more encouraged or excited about the future? Just like super big picture, having gone through all this stuff preseason, gone on this hunt. Like, where's your head at? I'm more confident and I think more excited because I can do more things now than I used to be able to do or used to feel like I could do. So hiking in the dark, I'm way more comfortable doing that gear. I'm, you know, it seemed really overwhelming at first. Like I couldn't remember all the things I need, but now I feel like I can pack a bag in less time and miss fewer things. I feel like I've pushed my boundaries for like comfort or like physical exertion. I know I can put in an 18 hour day and 20 miles. And so I am more excited. I definitely, um, you know, there's, I'm catching up on work to be honest (laughs) that I missed during the fall, but I mean, before long, it'll be time to track elk in the snow. And that's super exciting and something I love. And I think honestly easier. And then before long, it'll be shed hunting season. And then it'll be camping and backpacking. So there's really no break. I feel like I have good inertia. I am going to be able to go on... um, my friend's family's Thanksgiving deer hunt up in Montana, which I'm really excited for. I I mean, soon it's time to start thinking about tags already. I did an elk tag because I wasn't a Utah resident in time for the deer tags. And so I don't know, am I maybe going to try mule deer next year? There's just a lot to consider. I think a spike I don't know. Maybe I should have done a cow tag. I was having an ego moment when I was like, well, if it doesn't have antlers, it won't make a good mount. And then my first hunt needs to be mount worthy. Maybe I should have done a cow tag. Um, You know, that was just something that I was in my head about maybe listening to too many hunting podcasts because nobody's like, (laughs) yeah. And then I got a cow and it fed my family and it was kind of anticlimactic, but exactly what I needed, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, Nobody's doing a podcast about their trophy cows. And so maybe I'll do a cow tag next year or a deer tag. But there's still a lot of adventure to even be had before then. Um, Just being around animals and seeing them. I mean, that's how I got into hunting in the first place. I was just on a hike one February in Washington State and came across three 370 plus bulls. That was my first time seeing elk and I was 30 feet away from them and watched them for a few hours. And then I was like, okay, how can I make this happen more? That's awesome. Well, I'm excited personally. I uh, would love to have you stay in touch. Like, let me know how the deer hunt and things like that go. But just want to thank you for sharing you know, the before and now the after um, with everybody in the podcast audience, because Uh, telling more stories like this kind of relates to what you just said. Like people are quick to talk about their success. They're quick to talk about maybe big animals or how much experience they have. But I I feel like it's really important to learn from new hunters. Like I genuinely have learned some things from you um, and just been reminded of like helpful perspectives and mindsets and things like that. So thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you. It definitely helped me during my discouraging moments to think about you and Steve, um, you know, in addition to like other people that I've met that have mentored me, but especially thinking about the podcast, okay, how would they frame this moment? Like your recent podcast on mental toughness really helped as well. You know, when you gave the advice to break it down, things like, am I missing my wife? Am I 
feeling exhausted, like it helped me to break down, like, you know, I think my big mental issue is like really being able to leave work at work and enjoy being out in the field. Um, you know, which is hard when where we were hunting happened to have cell phone reception. Uh, but so that's something that, you know, I can have a whole year to focus on is really being present in the moment even more than I already am. Um, so your podcast has just been so invaluable in so many ways for me growing, you know, not, not just as a hunter, but as a person and as somebody who wants to enjoy the outdoors without depleting them and, you know, conserving them for future generations as well. Well, that's a wrap on this one. I hope you guys enjoyed hearing Zoe's story as much as I did. It's so uh, refreshing for me personally to hear from new hunters and kind of the questions that they have and their experiences and how it's different from mine. And it helps me, I think, have a better perspective for connecting with newer hunters who are in my life and how I can help them. And I hope that these podcasts have done that for you as well. As always, guys, if you have anything for us or just want to reach out, you can send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. If you haven't yet hit the subscribe or follow button in your podcast app, please do that so that you receive future episodes automatically, and we'll talk to you soon.